This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I see from Facebook that there has been a hatching. Is that the right term? <laughs> there has been a hatching, yes. Um, so for anybody who's maybe behind, hasn't fully followed the story, uh, few of my geese decided to lay and on a whim I, I didn't really think that the eggs would be any good but I just decided to stick them in the incubator and see what would happen I've always wanted to see if I could hatch geese eggs they're supposed to be a lot more difficult than any of the other eggs that I've hatched and I had left them out sitting out for way too long like uh, normally they say seven days I think and uh, some of these ones were like pfft, 15, 16 days old by the time I stuck them in the incubator. But after all of a sudden, then three of them uh, were good. And they made it all the way to the final days. I Geese eggs, they don't, I don't know how long they're supposed to take because they always give you a range. So like it could be between 30 and 36 days, but with chickens, it's like 21 days. <laughs> like So I didn't really know what to expect because they're like, oh, it just depends on the breed. But I couldn't find specific breed information. So I'm just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And um, one of the eggs just went real strong and popped himself out or herself out. <laughs> and uh, by special request um, in the Facebook group, somebody made this request. Um, it's it's called Ryan, Ryan Gosling. Um, <laughs> and uh, it can be a, it can be a girl or a boy, you know. And there were there were two other eggs in that batch and they looked like they were going to hatch. And one of them I, I didn't actually tell anybody this one of them actually did hatch but it didn't make it it was something was wrong it, it had a really difficult hatch it was malpositioned i had to give it help and um it just didn't have the the energy to to even stand or pick its head up after a couple of days i knew it wasn't going to make it so i never said anything about that and then the third egg just never made it and and that's very very common for when you um manually or humans try and hatch geese they say that if you get 50 percent of the eggs to hatch that you did spectacularly 85 percent is over the moon so you know one out of three eggs is acceptable um if we don't count the little guy who did technically hatch and didn't make it and so i had this one other egg sitting in the incubator that was um sort of off like I had been collect like after I put this first collection in, I I kept collecting the eggs and then they just stopped laying and like days went by. So I thought, okay, well, they're done. I'll just stick these two eggs in the incubator now so that they, you know, are good. And um, so I put them in like a week later of when I put that first batch in and of those two eggs, one of them was good. And that egg hatched and I didn't expect it to because when I was candling it, looking into the egg, it was like this, this chick or hatchling is in the wrong position. So after what had happened with the first two where they got 
all that way and then didn't make it, I was like, yeah, this one's not going to make it either. And I just left it alone. I let you do its do its thing. And I opened the incubator the next morning to get to turn the eggs because I have to rotate them three times a day by hand. And I lifted that egg up to see if like, is it still alive in there? And there's a big honking hole on the underside of it. And I'm like, that is exact opposite of where, <laughs> where they're supposed to start breaking out of the shell. So I was like, oh, crap. And so I like quick put everything back in the incubator because I didn't want it to get once the shell is open like that. If the membrane, the inner membrane gets exposed to air, then it can like get dried out and sh- kind of shrink wrap the hatchling where it can't move around to get itself out. So I was like, ah, so I stuck it back in the end, put sprayed water to get the humidity up and went about my day. And then like a couple hours later, I was thinking about it. I was like, I never even checked to see if it was alive. Like maybe it suffocated itself because the it was laying on a like a cloth and the hole was directly on top of that cloth so the airway was blocked so maybe it suffocated itself so I went to go see like maybe I could see any movement and it had hatched <laughs> like in, in those few hours I was like what so I was like okay well then I guess you want it out of there so I was super excited like oh now the first one doesn't have to be alone anymore and by that time, it was their only week apart, but the first one was like a monster compared, comparatively speaking, in size. And so that might be a little problem because the little one is so much smaller. And then with chicks a week apart, they're they're going to be fine together. This, I wasn't so sure. But, you know, it seemed to be doing well. And, you know, a few days go by and it's still alive and it's so small compared to the older one, which the older one is still very, very small. It's just so much bigger than the one that just hatched. It treats the older one like it's its mom because it's oh. just like, oh, this is bigger than me, so it must be my mother. And the bigger one is like, ooh, who are you? I'm not your mother. I, I'm just a baby. I don't know anything. But, and so, but it was really cute, and I was really happy. But then as days go by, I'm – I'm feeling a little like, I don't know if the second one's going to make it. And I don't have anything to go on. I mean, it walks, it cheeps, it, I think it's eating and drinking, but it just doesn't seem to have the energy or the mobility that I would expect by that, by two or three days. And sometimes there can just be a general failure to thrive. And I'm really afraid that's what's going to happen. So I've started like trying to hand feed it. It wants nothing to do with me hand feeding it. So I don't know. I have fingers crossed, but I'm not getting my hopes up because it's just part of how it is when you hatch things. You just never know. So that's my story. We've got one Ryan, two for now, and we may maybe back to one in a week or so. I don't know. But for now, hey, I hatched a goose egg on my first try, and I'm very proud of myself for that. Congratulations. <laughs> not only that, but took them on trips and <laughs> made lots of mistakes <laughs> with them. And so anyway, yeah. So where is their home now? Are they inside your house? And have you built them this luxury condominium or something like that? (laughs) Well, at first, because there was just one, I tried to see if maybe I could get some of the other geese, the adult geese, to mother it. And they wanted nothing to do with it. It's like, okay, I guess it's on me now. So right now it's in my bathroom. It's in a big tote with food and water and a heat lamp because when they're small, they need help regulating their body heat. And then gradually you move the heat lamp further and further away until they're okay in just, you know, because it takes them a while to get big enough to have that energy to not need to run under their moms and be warmed by the feathers. So that's where they are in my bathroom. I just, that bathroom might as well just be an animal hospital. 
<laughs> oh, goodness. Is this going to turn into another Francis situation? Well, <laughs> I, I, you didn't which immediately one? discount which it. So, <laughs> well, I mean, there have been quite a few Francis situations. I'm like, which one? Um, if any of the other eggs hatch, that there's still like, I don't know, 15. I'm going to have to find those ones new homes because I cannot have that many. I already have 10 geese, you know, and I can't have that many more. But uh, these first ones, I, I, they're my first. I, I've got to keep them. So in that sense, yes, they have turned into another Francis situation. <laughs> Francis and Ryan. Yes. Have you ever thought about writing songs? No. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine, I can just imagine the song. So something else really exciting happened in the last, between the last time we recorded and today. What was that? Actually, in the last 24 hours, uh, we got an email, listener email with some amazing questions. I, you, I, it was the first thing I saw when I woke up this morning and I can't even, it's like my day was made. That was just it. I was just like, I was so excited and so happy. I just couldn't wait to sit down and record. <laughs> These are just some fantastic questions. And I love hearing from listeners. So, yeah, very exciting. So, Taylor, we have in this email several questions, but there's one that you wanted to focus on for this show, and that was similes and metaphors, right? Yes. So this email was from Tanya, who wrote, I'm a listener of your podcast, love it, and also read the Two Liars books, love those too, and I have a few questions for you. And she sent several just fantastic questions, and I don't think we're going to get through all those questions today, uh, at least, yeah, I don't think we will, but I we may get further than one. So, But the one that I really wanted to start with was her question on similes and metaphors, uh, so I'm just going to read her question here about that. She wrote, since you put a lot of emphasis on mental images and the immersion they create, it made me wonder. Let's say I write something like a river of people gush down the narrow street. I don't actually want to conjure up an image of flowing water. I want to support the image of masses of people. So doesn't this require that the reader goes back and retextualize the image? Is there a way to use similes without breaking the flow of images? I haven't paid attention to this, but do you use similes and metaphors in your books? And that's like the series of fantastic questions. And what I love so much about the way these questions are asked is that she gives me examples. And that allows me to very specifically answer without having to imagine what's being asked of me. So let's work at this a little bit backwards. Do I use similes in and metaphors in my books? I think so. <laughs> no, I know I must. Um, when it comes to terms like these, I am just notoriously a blank, like, black box. <laughs> I don't know grammar. I like term grammar terminology is a foreign language to me. And I never, like, I never got past sixth grade, but I remember even in sixth grade, I couldn't understand what they were trying to teach me in English class. <laughs> so everything I understand about English is instinctual. And from having my knuckles so consistently wrapped by copy editors 
through the years as they clean up my my messes. So before I even attempt to answer this question, I went back to make sure I understood what similes and metaphors are. And I I got this thing, simile versus metaphor. I'm basically cribbing it from dictionary.com. And I'm going to read it here because I know that while many of our listeners are far more educated than I am, sometimes there still can be confusion between simile and metaphor and what they are. So I'm just going to read this here. A simile is a comparison between two things that uses the word like or as. For example, her smile is as bright as sunshine. A metaphor is a direct comparison between two things that does not use like or as. For example, her smile is sunshine. Metaphors are broader and can refer to a variety of ways of comparing or connecting different things, including those that don't use words at all. That was sort of the cliff notes. And then they went into more detail and they said, a simile is a figure of speech in which two things are compared in a way that clearly indicates that a comparison is being made. And this is typically done using the word like or as. So the most basic form of simile is X is like Y, as in his temper is like a thunderstorm. But you can form similes in other ways, too. His temper is as furious as a thunderstorm, or his temper is as furious, is furious much like a thunderstorm. Similes are generally used to make descriptions more vivid, saying the stars twinkle doesn't spark the imagination nearly as much as the stars twinkled like diamonds. Oh, please don't ever say that. <laughs> so anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. Similes allow descriptions to be more concrete or better engage the senses, which makes the description stand out more. But the use of like or as clearly indicates that the comparison that's being made is a simile. Now, a metaphor, in the broadest sense, a metaphor refers to a symbol that represents something else. For example, you could say something like, in the novel, the horse that keeps appearing and disappearing is a metaphor for death. Many of what we call figures of speech are technically types of metaphors, and even similes can be thought of as a type of metaphor. In terms of writing and speech, a metaphor is the applying of a word or phrase to something that's not literally related in order to suggest a resemblance. Sometimes this type of metaphor is basically a simile without the words like or as, as in his temper was a thunderstorm. And like similes, metaphors are used to draw vivid comparisons or create associations, but the effect can be even more powerful with metaphors because metaphors can be much more complex. So that's the general gist of it. And the reason why I had to go back and read all of that um, is to understand myself. <laughs> what, what is it that I'm actually doing in my writing? So to, it's, it's a really interesting uh, question slash answer combination because where I, I'm, one of the reasons why I, I teach if this, then that type techniques for writing in a very hack the craft sort of way is because that's how it's easy for me to understand things. I don't like all these open-ended, it just give it to me simple. Don't do this. Okay. Do this. Okay. Uh, trying to figure out how to walk this path through stuff when I don't even understand what it is they're talking about is very complex, right? And one of the books that I found, and it, it's been touted for, for, for eons, 
as being very clear and concise with rules to follow is the strunk and white elements of style. And the first time I read that book, it's, it's very dry. It's very clinical, not at all interesting, but it teaches you very, if then here's the rules, follow these rules. And for the ones that I could understand, because some of them do use grammar terms that I just go straight over my head, but for some of the ones that I can understand, a few really stuck out. And one of them was on use of the word like, and like, like as, as they're referring to here with similes. And I went back to see if I could find it and I, I can't. So I'm going to have to paraphrase it here, but it, it basically amounted to don't say if you can, if you can use something is like something else, just say it's the something else. And that in my mind, it's stuck in my mind. So I really try to avoid the use of apparently similes. And so I think that even though I use a lot of referent type language in my books, most of them are going to be metaphors simply because I try so hard to avoid the use of like or as to compare one thing to the next. And if I can't find a way to compare without the like or the as, I tend to rewrite. Which is interesting to me because I never had the context for that until this question arrived. But there's something else that they said in terms of figures of speech that I'm going to just go ahead and read straight from the book because I think it also speaks to why I do what I do. And don't worry, I'm going to get more into that how-to and stuff in just a second. But here's what Strunk and White have to say about that. The simile is a common device and a useful one, but similes coming in rapid fire, one right on top of the other, are more distracting than illuminating. Readers need time to catch their breath. They can't be expected to compare everything with something else and no relief in sight. When you use metaphor, do not mix it up. That is, don't start by calling something a swordfish and end by calling it an hourglass. So they have more to say on that elsewhere, but that that's the meat of similes and metaphors in that small little book. And when I very first started reading reviews for the first time, book reviews, not just my own, it was after The Informationist was published that I, I started reading book reviews for the first time, but I would read them for other books as well. And some people can be pretty snarky in the way they tear apart the writing of that they disapprove of. And it vividly struck stuck out to me at that time how mean the reviewers were to authors that mixed metaphors or used poorly worded similes. And I, I think there was a book called The Lovely Bones, and there was some sentence in that book about her eyes being like olives or in something. I don't remember exactly. I never read the book. I just remember this reviewer just, just snarking so hard at the author over this comparison. And it was the first time it had ever dawned on me how careful you have to be in 
accuracy when you are comparing one thing to the next. And all of that is a lead up to me coming back and answering this question because I'm going to focus on the actual words that have just been presented to me on the page. Now, to be very clear, I'm quite aware that when Tanya formulated this uh, email, she was not taking great pains to be careful about the simile that she used as an example, right? But so this is not at all poking at the question or the questioner. I'm so grateful for the question. But I'm going to use this as an example to kind of highlight how my brain works when I am using imagery to create a stronger sense of people, place, emotion, or whatever, right? So in this question, Tanya says, let's say I write something like, a river of people gushed down the narrow street. And then she says, I don't actually want to conjure up an image of flowing water. I want to support the image of masses of people. So for me personally, I see a sentence like a river of people gushed down the narrow street and my brain shuts off. I'm like, no, just no. And the reason being that that is not when when you're trying to create imagery that is not going to give the image that you actually want or need Be, for the exact reason that she says in this question doesn't that require the reader to go back and recontextualize the image and she says i don't want to conjure up an image of flowing water i want to support the image of masses of people so in an instance like this I personally would never say like a river of people rushed down the narrow street. I would say a throng of people, um, or I would say a mass of people throng the narrow street because those are more accurate words and there would never be a simile or metaphor at all in there because I would use the strong, the strongest words possible to convey the exact thing that I'm trying to convey. So let's say we're talking about a narrow street in Rome and a bunch of people have just been let out of um, a huge convention or a party or something and they're in a foot race to get to, like a treasure hunt, to get from point A to point B and this whole group of people is crowding into this narrow passageway like a bottleneck to get through right I, you don't need metaphors or similes to conjure up the images because you use words like masses and throngs and the crush of bodies and high walls and stone and lack of air and you describe in that you're even if it's a an observer watching it rather than a person actually the point of view isn't coming from a person inside that throng you still use the strongest language possible that conceptualizes that moment and the images themselves will generate automatically in the reader's mind so in a situation like this this very specific context if you were to then add the simile of like a river gushing through a gully, 
you may be doing yourself a disservice. You may be stealing from the strength of the scene by cheapening it with a simile or a metaphor when it was already strong enough on its own. So as a general rule for me, I will try to avoid using similes or metaphors if I can. Like, I'll only use them in instances where I can't find a way to get the context itself to convey the emotion or the imagery that's needed. I personally think that similes are where cliches are born. Like, that's why I said, please don't ever say spark twinkled like diamonds, because that is just, there's no originality in there. And the problem with cliches is not the lack of originality. It's the way that our brains skip over it. So you can say something twinkled like diamonds, and it's going to have absolutely zero more effect on the image created by the brain than saying twinkled, because our brains just ignore what is common and familiar, and it's just background noise. So to make a simile really work, to to make it do the work of emphasizing the point and emphasizing the emotion rather than stealing from it, it has to be unique to that moment on the page. It has to be something that is smart. And I say smart in finger quotes because I do not consider myself very smart in that way. I, I don't think deeply like, oh, I'm going to come up with some really deep creative metaphor for whatever. I just, I'm not smart like that. So I just say smart finger quotes in the sense of not just rushed off as if you didn't even think about it. Like it has to be in that applicable to that moment, specific to that moment. You can take something that's been said a million times and change it. And it will be unique to that moment, but the to just quote something that's been said all this time, just because that's how we're used to it, you're robbing yourself. That's the problem with cliches, is it's boring and not interesting, and people don't read to be bored. So, yes, I do use metaphors. I apparently avoid similes because of the like connection and trying to avoid like A as A, but I do use metaphors because if I can find a way to do that without using the like as a comparison. Like I do appreciate in the explanation that the dictionary.com gave where they said his, um, what was it? His fury was like, his fury was thunder or his temper was a thunderstorm, right? That to me is something I would write. I would never say his temper was like a thunderstorm. If I can, I will do everything possible to get rid of. And so I will say his temper was a thunderstorm or, you know, his the his way or his, the air about him or expression darkened and, th- and thunder rolled in or something. So it's clearly not being literal in the description, but because it's missing the like A and the, the other things that make it obviously comparison it just feels so much richer and stronger to me anyway, it seems. So I think the f- that I'm avoiding the use of like A also helps to avoid the use of cliches. Uh, I, I did not 
understand all of that in the first book that I wrote, maybe not even the second. I probably didn't even figure out to the fourth or something along those lines. It's something that that I learned through trial and error. And I really appreciate what Strunk and White said about how you can't just have everything compared to everything without a break. So I try really hard to keep those comparisons few and far between for that reason. I didn't remember that until I came back and read it, but it is for that reason. Like using comparisons is exhausting to the brain to have to constantly be jumping from one thing to the next. So my goal is to keep them few and keep them strong and keep them consistent. So if I find a metaphor that that works sort of thematically at the beginning, I might keep coming back to it multiple times throughout the book in ways that aren't in your face about it, or at least that's my attempt, what I'm working towards. But to just keep throwing a like a this and a like a that and a, all these similarities and comparisons, it just pulls you out of the storytelling. So, and and pulls the reader out of the story. So sparingly, I guess you could say, for whenever you can't find another way to convey that depth or that richness of imagery and emotion. And I think that new writers who are just sort of getting their feet wet, I certainly was this way when I first started, because of the way that good writing conjures all those images in your mind as you read, and because you don't have a way to analyze or deconstruct or articulate exactly what's happening there on the page, it's easy to assume or believe mistakenly that those images are being conjured through comparisons when most of the time they're not. They're being conjured through strong word usage, using very strong verbs, very clear nouns, and clear writing. That's what's doing the heaviest lifting of of building that emotion in you as you read. But because your brain is creating these pictures, because you don't understand why that's happening, you don't understand the mechanism yet that's that's causing those pictures to be created, the assumption is I need to create those pictures for people. And that's where the similes and the metaphors come in. You're trying to generate these images in the reader's brain. And that, if you're doing it for that reason, then that is almost surely a sign that you're overusing them or using them in a cliched manner or just exhausting the brain trying to keep up with the imagery. So now if I can take my own advice and try and boil it down to something more concise, I would say avoid the similes, which are the likes and the as, if you can. Focus on the metaphors, which can be the exact same thing without the like or the as. If you can't write it, Without the like or the as, it maybe just needs to have something else there instead. Try and keep the metaphors consistent 
and few and far between and save them for when nothing else seems to generate the same level of imagery or emotion and focus on using your word choices, strong verbs, clear nouns, bind them together in as elegant a way as possible to do the heavy lifting that you were relying, over-relying on similes and metaphors for in the first place. Okay. I think I did that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And I think that wraps it up perfectly. So we, I think we're just going to call it for this show, Taylor, and, and we'll cover some of the other questions in a later show. Awesome. Okay. So Tanya, if that wasn't clear, if I didn't like get the gist of what you were asking me, let me know. I'll I'll do round two. If somebody else is listening to this and thinks, you know, I think you were off base there because this, or, well, how does it apply in this situation? Let me know. We'll keep talking about it, but I think that's all I have on it for right now. Thank you all for listening. We will be back again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here. See you next week. <laughs>